0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalygin. We hope you're having a fantastic week. We hope our Orthodox listeners are having a fantastic last few weeks of Lent. Going into Holy Week, have a happy Palm Sunday. Of course, for our non Orthodox listeners, we hope that you celebrate the resurrection of Christ in a beautiful and holy way. But with all of that, there's a few great things to talk about, a lot of things going on just at the beginning of this week, and then it maybe slowed down a little bit. So we're gonna get into all of that. But if you haven't seen it already, be sure to check out episode five of Ether Hour that we did with Father Joseph Gleason talking about his translation work on the works of Father Constantine Bufev on creation and evolution. We had a great conversation on that subject, very wide ranging and spanning many different Pieces of subject matter and how it relates to Orthodox life, and even how it relates to, you know, some of the stuff going on today, even in Ukraine. So, with all of that, if you maybe you have something to say about our episode recently, but Dimitri, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great, Conrad, and I completely agree. Um the week has really tapered off. Uh, you know, it started off with an intense bang, both geopolitically, and I guess locally all these all this news, especially uh in Russia concerning the persecution kind of ramped up. We had footage of, you know, Orthodox Churches being destroyed. Of course the Middle East kind of erupted as well, with more uh, intensity we'll kind of discuss here. And uh, frankly, even even more horrendous things going on in Russia itself domestically finding you know turmoil within there and you know this is all kind of part and parcel of Great Lent, you know, the demons being very active at trying to confuse and also distract Orthodox Christians from having a very solemn and prayerful Lent period, of course, causing all these events to take place. It's really not surprising, given as to how intense Great Lent was last year in 2022. But nevertheless, the episode with uh, Father Joseph has been amazing. If everybody to check it out, just uh, you can check it out on Substack or YouTube for World War Now. It was uh, pretty much one and a half hours, just over one and a half hours of intense interviewing and Father Joseph essentially breaking down the idea of orthodoxy and creationism exactly what the orthodox position is on the creation of the world on evolution with this you know main subject which keeps coming up always from from the time you were in school up to you know your first conversation with an atheist boyfriend or girlfriend or something of that sort you know you always you know the idea the idea comes up well did humans come from monkeys and Father Joseph I think breaks that down at a very basic level but also gets gets into some deep theology and you know pies it back into the real world exactly how it applies and don't want to give any spoilers but it was a great episode go check it out it's completely free so we'll have the links in the description but nevertheless lots of news to discuss conrad
0: yeah we're gonna dive into it again ether hour not all of them are free so you know you're welcome for this privileged bonus for all of you poor fags out there who you know aren't saddling up and supporting us just kidding we uh we love all of our Our supporters and our our free supporters, as well as those who pay and subscribe. But no, Dmitri, you're right. We uh, we got to get into what's going on in Ukraine, and you know we can finally, you know, stop feeling bad about that title to our episode a few episodes back about Bakhmut being liberated because it's actually true. Bakhmut is actually effectively entirely under the control of Wagner and the Russian military, and it seems now that we've got some more revelations about the whole situation that was going on there, which. I'd be lying if I said didn't have a couple of our heads scratching just kind of for how long it was going on and some of the confusion there despite no... like People would be complaining and there'd be breakdown in communications and these other things, but then no, nothing would really happen. So it seems like we finally got some answers on that. Dimitri, do you want to maybe fill us in on the Bakhmut situation as this saga that we've been covering for months now comes to an
1: end? Yes. Yeah, so for those un- unaware, Bakhmut was essentially the city in... Russia and Ukraine, I suppose, on their new border, which which finally stopped the great uh, comeback reconquest that the Ukrainians uh, started back in August of 2022, when they reconquered cities in the Kherson region, as well as uh, Kharkov and Donbass as well, pushing the Russians back over a period of you know several months between August and November 2022, until of course this onslaught was stopped at Bakhmut, and Bakhmut has been uh, just a fiery siege for both sides. Actually, it wasn't like a battle of Thermopylae where you had 300 Spartans against thousands of Persians. Both sides committed very heavily, but we could definitely say that the Russians committed less so. In fact, the main force fighting against the Ukrainians in the city of Bakhmut was the Russian mercenary group Wagner, which essentially uh, everybody in Wagner received the baptism of fire in this particular siege. This is Officially now, the greatest battle that has taken place in the 21st century, and by great, I don't mean awesome or you know or somehow good in any capacity, but great as in just a magnitude historically speaking. It, uh, you know, many lives have been lost and uh, so much artillery shells have been spent in just this particular area. It's the entire city has been ruined. Fortunately, it was evacuated beforehand, so not not many civilian casualties from what we can tell. But at least for the Ukrainian army, it has been bloodied very heavily, and you know since since early december up until now now that you know russian sources have officially announced bakhmut has has been taken its central suburbs have been officially occupied by the wagner mercenaries russian artillery is being moved up towards the western side which ukrainians have controlled since you know, three months for now already and uh it's really kind of r- relieving seeing the Russians finally achieving something after about five months of Ukrainians, you know, essentially holding and if if not pushing the Russians back and seeing Russian losses over and over again or at least in Western media being portrayed. But also Russian media sources giving us kind of a, a black pilled, a more depressed stance on exactly what was happening in, in the special military operation zone. So Bakhmut uh, officially has been announced by the Russian side to have fallen to the Russian Federation or Wagner. Now I guess we'll just see when Ukrainians finally announce it on their side, because up until now official, you know, news sources such as the Guardian, UK or uh, routers, US have Still, yet to announce this particular city to be taken by Russia, and it's a huge victory for the uh, for the media space and PR, at least for the Russian side. Uh, nevertheless, very impressive. The leader of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has, I think, achieved himself a. Uh, A certain amount of respect, at least in the eyes of Russian patriots, as well as uh, those who, you know, wishing Russia to be victorious in this conflict. He himself, you know, not an Orthodox Christian, from what I understand, at least somewhat sympathetic by his outlook, because he does allow a Russian priest to be present amongst his forces. And he does allow his Orthodox Christian rituals to be performed and for prayers to be done and for Christians, Christian symbols to be carried by his troops. So he is supportive in that capacity, whether or not he's a Christian himself, I'm not too sure. He is very um Soviet man in terms of you know for all intents and purposes. But yeah, it's very, very good news for the Russian side. But for the Ukrainian side, again, um they've been preparing a counteroffensive for a while now and this, if this Bakhmut city falling does not uh, somehow escalate and does not kind of perpetuate a response from Ukraine, Zelensky may need to do some explaining to his masters abroad, and especially those in the EU next door, kind of explaining as to why all the donations and military aid has failed to provide any sort of results up in, you know over the last four months.
0: Well, and, if, and for that kind of, you know, failure from the perspective of the Western sponsors of the Kiev regime... It it almost seems too simple of an answer, but again, I'm not the first one to say this, but we know that when it comes to Lloyd Austin, some of the joint chiefs of staffs in the State Department in the U.S., they get their battlefield reports directly from the Ukrainian chiefs of staff and the Ukrainian military general counsel, which is probably the most biased group to get your military statistics from whatsoever because they... Have been completely lying about the fatalities and casualties that Ukraine has felt this entire time to keep the supply of Western weapons coming in and keep morale high among the Western population to not realize what's really going on as Russia grinds down the Ukrainian military. But one of the big reveals, I guess, and some people might have postulated this before, is that the Bakhmut meat grinder itself was entirely masterminded by Surovikin and the Russian military itself and was not exactly some kind of huge breakdown in communication, I think, between Wagner and the Russian Ministry of Defense. And again, I'm also not the first one to say this. Many have put forward the idea that a lot of the ammunition shortages that were going on and the calls from Wagner to the Russian Mil- Ministry of Defense to send them more ammunition and that they weren't taking it seriously and that certain people in the Kremlin you know, needed to be taken out. And, you know, very dramatic statements about you know, against the government that, again, we see in Russia, like you're not exactly just allowed to say whatever you want about the special military operation. So I was like, "Hmm, why is he being given this lateral leeway to just kind of criticize the Kremlin like this? But I think, at least from my perspective, it seems very likely that a lot of that was theater to get Ukraine to keep sending in more and more army units and battalions and brigades into Bakhmut to completely wipe them out, annihilate and Run them out of ammunition because now even the West itself is having issues supplying Ukraine with ammunition, let alone Ukraine itself having enough to keep up its defense from the amount of shells Russia is firing towards it. And again, Russia produces more ammunition and shells for a lot of these howitzers and mortars and artillery than the West and its allies and U.S. combined. So the idea that russia is in danger of running out of weapons before not just ukraine but frankly even nato itself is definitely silly so you shouldn't listen to reports like that because those have been going on since like 2 months into the war you should be more worried about not just ukraine but the people sponsoring them running out of shells for their own militaries at this point so again this is this is a big development we're seeing you know flags farther even farther away than the center of the city Wagner flags, you know, Russian aligned flags. So it seems that again, as Dimitri said, the largest battle of the twenty first century is somewhat coming to an end. And we hope that any attempts to take this city back by Ukraine are quickly repelled so as to not repeat such a such a bloody such a bloody history and that maybe somehow it can start to be rebuilt. But we thought Mariupol was bad from a rebuilding perspective. This is a whole nother level, frankly
1: yeah that's right and of of course it gives an opportunity for the russian side to you know show just their capacity to rebuild to sort of bring the area back into a into a peaceful state wherein to, you know they could actually bring in all these construction companies from Russia. You know, again, provide jobs to those in the Donbas, Lugansk area, and actually, uh, you know, those those working in the construction field, bring in architects, rebuild the city, build, bring up apartments, Orthodox churches, government buildings, police stations, fire stations. Just bring Bakhmut, which uh, you know could serve a population of between 30 and 60,000 people, back to a state of you know living capacity. And naturally, you would need to be demined, and all these processes wouldn't need to, you know, take place as well. But Russia could show if, of course, the offensive does slow down to a halt and the Russian forces don't immediately move to the next cities of Izum, Lysychansk, or even possibly, uh, you know, the the great city of Slavyansk, wherein the great, you know, the Donbass war actually began all, all those eight on almost nine years ago, when Strelkov and his uh, 50 or so commanders, essentially, uh, after the Maidan coup, arrived in Slavyansk and kind of uh, you know, began the whole ordeal, or at least participated in a, in a in a formal sense. So Slavyansk is the city next to Bakhmut, just to the west, honestly held by Ukrainians at the moment. So if Russia doesn't move further west and kind of solidifies its position along the front, it could, of course, show the Ukrainian side that, look, we're not actually here to just Destroy and besiege your independent Ukrainian cities. We're here to bring them back into the fold, bring them back to Russia, which built these cities from from the imperial times a long time ago. And you know, all these cities, of course, have a cultural unity with the Russian people and the Russian culture. And uh, the people living here aren't strangers. They're not um occupied peoples. They're not peoples of a second sort. They're citizens of the Russian Federation, equal under the law and should be and will be treated as such, and their cities will be rebuilt, you know, according to the Russian budget. And yeah, so they could actually present that image to the people of Zaporozhye, to the people of Kherson and Kharkiv, those people in the east of Ukraine, and kind of give them this image of a benevolent, merciful Russia that you know does kind of rebuild what it potentially destroys in the line of battle and combat so nevertheless you know Ukraine will need to of course figure out a a position as to where it could you know somehow leverage this maybe use it as a as a certain um you know kind of like now that the stalemate has broken in in bakhmut and bakhmut has fallen to the russians it could kind of use this as as an excuse to further push into the Russian territories, possibly in Zaporozhye, which the Russians have bombarded recently, preeminently the Zaporozhye front, which uh, naturally, op- which the Ukrainians could use with their new, um, with their new collection of tanks they received from the West. When well, we're talking about, you know, between 100 and 200 tanks they have prepared at the moment from all these various NATO countries, they could use, of course, to push the Russian city of Militopol to the south, which opens up. Not just the Crimea, but also the southern front, you know, Mariupol again, and the southern front of Donbass. And it, you know, this is kind of where Ukraine would be looking, I guess, in the next few, in the next few days, maybe weeks. At least their general staff will be planning a potential counteroffensive. And we see this in media sources of the West as well. They're all saying, "Well, we've given all this, all this equipment to Ukraine in 2023." The counteroffensive is slowly being prepared. We're slowly cooking up this soup and we're going to serve it very soon. And that naturally, this, uh, you know, um, we're all kind of waiting in, in anticipation here. But nevertheless, uh, will it take place after Bakhmut? My guess is uh, most likely yes. And I don't think Bakhmut will ever become a battlefront again, not after Ukrainians have lost it this intensely and this hard. Well, we can definitely hope so. And you talked about the Melitopol push
0: and the Zaporozhye offensive, which really. You know, thinking it all out, we don't know. Anthony Blinken said something to the effect of, "Oh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive will start in two to three weeks." Which I don't know why you would say that. Maybe there's maybe there's some strategy there, but the Zaporozhye direction is really the only one that makes sense. We were talking about this before we started recording. But the other question becomes, what will Russia do? And again, it seems everyone has always been wrong whenever they predict some kind of big arrow Russian offensive, and we've seen the huge trenches. Built between some of these cities like Mikolaev and Melitopol, these seventy kilometer trenches that are you know hundreds of yards thick with these fortifications and these reinforced you know concrete areas and everything that are being built you know with pretty rapid pace so we're we it's becoming very it's becoming more and more unlikely by the day for Ukraine to really be able to push in this direction, but of course, the question becomes where is Russia's next target itself, and we've seen. In Donetsk, in some of these cities, in the Zaporozhia, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson regions, these billboards saying things like, Odessa, wait for us, we're coming for you, and these other sorts of things put up by the local governments, and... Yeah, Dmitry. of course, I want to get your thoughts on that. It's my perspective that, you know, again, I don't have any direct evidence from government sources that there's a plan right now to immediately take Odessa. But I guess I would say that there are people in power in Moscow and the Kremlin that would not allow something like that to be put up by the Donetsk government, but they chose not to act and those billboards are still up. So I think it's definitely something that's allowed to be thought in the public zeitgeist of Russia that the government is okay with people kind of thinking about. And I don't see them perpetuating that idea if they planned to just sue for peace and completely give up those territories for some kind of you know new border but i want to get your thoughts on that to be you, and then i want to talk about some of the stuff in Lviv and some of the churches before we leave ukraine itself but what are your thoughts on the next
1: the next russian move i think uh the big post is saying that's a wait for us it is it is kind of a uh, preemptive and sort of premeditative uh, conditioning of sorts for the people of Donetsk. It actually, you know, Donetsk being a frontline city of the Russian, of the Russian forces, it, the posters coming up there do kind of symbolize the next kind of potential front, at least for those you know actively looking for Russia's intervention in, in the city of Don- uh, Odessa itself. So um, the, the, there is a potential, of course, that Russia do launch their um, amphibian or sea, Black Sea operation in, a, in the Odessa region. We spoke about this a few episodes ago relating to Transnistria and Moldova, which has calmed down since then. And frank, frankly, there haven't been any escalations on that particular front. But that is always a possibility. And the forces gathered in Crimea, as well as Donbass by by Russia and also the Black Sea Fleet has been preparing for some sort of operation. Now, which city would they take? Odessa or Nikolaev on the coast? There's only essentially two options here. Kherson being a bit uh, out of reach, especially for the Navy. Now, you know, Kherson could be, of course, retaken, but as we've seen, Russia really can't utilize Kherson in any capacity to push further in. At least they haven't done that in 2022. So Odessa definitely could be the the implied target for the future. We'll also discuss the grain deal and how that's imp- imp- impacted uh, Russian-Ukrainian trade, as well as the international community's stance on the whole war, because I think uh, close to 30% of the world's grain actually leaves the ports stationed next to Odessa City. So if the Russians do launch uh, some sort of amphibian or sea uh, invasion of the Odessa oblast uh, in the, on the western southwestern side of Ukraine, those potential grain shipments will be affected. They'll, they'll need to be a very coordinated effort not to affect the ports, or at least those civilian infrastructure areas, it it would be a very intense operation, and in fact, it could shift, you know, the future of the conflict itself into a more kind of into a more end stage, because now Ukraine will definitely be under pressure from not just the eastern side, but also the southwestern side, where the Russians could uh, essentially build up this this uh, platform from where to push, uh, you know, further up north, I suppose, back into. Mainland, main, mainland Ukraine, as you can call it, and even Western Ukraine, and naturally this would be, of course, looked down upon by those in the Russian government uh, suing for peace, or those kind of pushing the idea that, well, now that the front line hasn't shifted much beyond the city of Bakhmut, perhaps. We should sue for peace with Ukraine. And these these are more liberal-minded Russians acting in Moscow. And, you know, they're very active. This is, we're talking about 30 or 40% of Russian politicians have this opinion. Their old chief leader was Dmitry Medvedev, who's kind of shifted and became more of a right-wing power figure in Russian politics. But naturally, those liberal... uh, as Dugin would call them, fifth columnists, but in this case, the just liberal oppositionary, you know, peace—I uh, guess you can call them doves—are still active in in the Russian political sphere. And really, they haven't. Yeah, they haven't impacted those posters. But I do want to kind of remind people that there were posters when the cities of Kursk, uh, when Kherson became Russian, you know, claiming that well, Russia is here to stay. Russia will never leave Kherson. Those posters were also put up. Not just around Kyrgyzstan, but also Crimea. And uh, those posters came down once Ukraine recaptured Kyrgyzstan. So uh, political posters are premeditative and the reform of public PR. I'm um, not sure what exactly, ha- how much weight there is behind them. It could just be a local politician trying to at least pressure his leaders in Moscow and in the Federation of Russia trying to, you know, kind of force some action because Don-, Don Donetsk is still being bombarded by Ukrainians. So actually pushing the front, pushing the front further west or taking the attention of the Ukrainian forces away from the city of Donetsk and away from that eastern front of the conflict would benefit the to- Donetsk politicians. So of course they'd want Russia to escalate the conflict. If anything, they would have a complete right to ask for a total war from the Russian side to kind of end this once and for all, because they've been, I mean, civilians are dying in Donetsk every week, let's just say. So there's funerals ongoing all the time. The, you know, the the graveyard is is filling up. The Donetsk has several graveyards and they're full of people who've died over the last eight years. So the conflict really hasn't, hasn't benefited the people of Donetsk in any capacity at all.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, we could see. I could even see a push on the ground in that direction, just to continue the, you know, continue pushing back the front lines, so that the artillery then has to move back, so that eventually the artillery has to move so far back that you know they can't effectively do their terrorism. But speaking of you know terrorism and everything, there's a few subjects related to terrorism today. But I wanted to talk about before we leave Ukraine, what's going on in the church, and we saw a church outbuilding which looked like a second chapel to me of a church in Ilvov being totally destroyed by construction equipment, backhoes and everything. And it had been marked with a big Z, you know, as a enemy church of the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And you know, that was destroyed. They of course claimed permit. They always claim whether it's the Jews in Israel, whether it's the schismatics in Ukraine, whether it's You know, people in the Caucasus taking certain things or people in the Balkans, like in Kosovo and Albania, they always use these permit laws, this lease stuff. They always have legal – like people think it's, oh, it's going to be so easy to recognize persecution. No, it's not. They're going to fight – like persecution happens because so many people in the world see it as okay and go along with it and justify it. If they didn't, it wouldn't really be persecution. It would just be – eventually people would just stand up to it, but that's, that's not how these things work. And at so many other places, like at the Kiev Pechersk Lavra mm-hmm. itself, now that Abbot Pavel has been arrested, there's been so many people gathering there to pray and to and to sing and to sing psalms and hymns. And there's also Satanists and Ukrainian nationalists and evil people and schismatic supporters that are showing up. And there was just so much demonic energy and people screaming and just disrupting the the beauty of the of services and prayer that when we talk about Odessa and these cities being taken. Again, we and we, we read these prophecies about repentance. And again, look, I'm not perfect. We're here in Lent. We're all remembering our sins and everything. So, I'm not here to judge on behalf of myself, the Ukrainian people. But just seeing what's going on in the world and seeing these clips and seeing people show up to houses of worship at ancient, thousand-year-old places where saints, so many saints reside, and then just like talk about worshiping Satan and disgusting sexual acts and harass women praying and, and you know children this this has consequences. And this is how you get thousands dead in huge sieges in cities like Odessa. And we have saints and holy elders that have spoken about this. So, you know, I think to expect something like that to happen, perhaps would be preceded by such a big, almost public outpouring of evil as we've now been seeing surrounding the Kiev Pityra Lavra.
1: That's right. And, uh, you know, we kind of, we've Patience And with, uh, you know, prayer, we do watch the situation in Ukraine unfold, especially that around regarding the Kiev Petrosk Lavra and the Pachayev Lavra, the second largest Lavra in Ukraine. And, you know, overall in Russia, it is considered one of the holiest monasteries. It would probably fall into the top five category, and it's located just east, about two hours east of Vilvov roughly about 140 kilometers or so. So now that the churches are being destroyed by this machinery, industrial machinery, being deemed, you know, irresponsible buildings, there's, you know, they're claiming, oh, this old church regard. You know, it's all church. Not only is it Russian, not only is does it have you know Russian icons and Russian texts within it. So, but it also you know it's also built on this. It's it's unsafe. The church needs to be demolished because you know it's legally uns- uh, it shouldn't be here. Like it's it's you know it's made out of these planks. It needs to be officially destroyed by the local council. So, so as Conrad mentioned, they do hide behind legalities and they do hide behind the law in order to permit their persecution and to make them you make it to make it look official, which is similar to what the Bolsheviks. When the Bolsheviks began, you know, executing Cossacks, executing priests, they did that under the auspices of the l- current legal system that they they themselves implemented. So it's kind of like <laughs> they they pass their people through the parliaments, they pass the laws themselves, and then they execute those laws and follow through. And they they control the judges. They also you know issue the warrants and they changed you know they changed the landscape in which all these uh, legal systems are operating. And so. We're looking at, uh, of course, an escalation of persecution in Ukraine. So Pachayev Lavra, Kiev Lavra, we have to pray for the monks there, and definitely uh, we'll keep a lookout on that. There is a, a there is a local council decision around the Pachayev Lavra in the western portion of Ukraine. The government is discussing what to do with it now that Kiev Pachersk has kind of uh, whittled out and the government hasn't decided to take, take the Lavra from the supporters. There is a consideration of taking perhaps Pachayev Lavra, which is also very big. It has you know, this this Lavra has been defended against medieval and we're talking about Renaissance-era invasions from, you know, the Poles and the Lithuanians and even the French and other, you know, Swedish forces in the past. So, it does have large walls which can withstand, you know, cannonballs and actually withstand the siege. So, this particular city monastery will be protected by the local monks there. But how many Orthodox Christians are there in the western part of Ukraine. I think is the main concern, and my my guess is probably not as many as in Kiev, who have come up to defend the Kiev Lavra, during this time of great Lent, right before Easter. Um, in regards to now, now that we've spoken about the spiritual terrorism, which is constantly ongoing, and an actual act of political terrorism took place in in Saint Petersburg itself, which is you know the second capital of Russia, the imperial capital, the city of Saint John of Kronstadt, and so many other great saints but uh, this terrorist act was committed um, in early April in a cafe, actually, of all places. So a typical mainstream... St. Petersburg Street. There was, a, uh, there was a meeting going on in a cafe and actually a presentation. So the whole cafe was booked out for a Russian organization, which deals with j- military journalism. So wartime journalism in Ukraine. And they were giving out awards actually to notable journalists. And frankly, there was a few, a few important people there. Most of them Orthodox Christian, mind you, because they've all attended the local services beforehand. Uh, so this terrorist act occurred earlier in the week. But the main victim of the terrorist attack, so we're not sure exactly how the bomb was planted. The bomb was, you know, usually probably some sort of local explosive. Uh, Several people died. The main victim of it was a famous wartime journalist from Donbass. His uh, nickname was Vladlan Tatarsky, but his Christian Orthodox name was Maxim Femin and a uh, servant of the lord maxim passed away from the explosion almost immediately he was torn apart by the bomb and he died he was only 40 years of age now he was a practicing orthodox christian his story is interesting i guess i'll just give you a rundown so he was a famous bank robber in in ukraine prior to Maidan, and he was uh, you know just a thief a robbing banks like essentially just a criminal uh now this is a real soul to apostle paul's story here and maxim eventually after the after the maidan coup occurred he was pardoned by the donbass authorities and he kind of had this uh coming back to god moment where he finally embraced the faith of his baptism and he returned essentially became became again. He began going to church in 2014 began uh, a journalist career kind of had this complete change of heart and through his telegram through his journalism he did cover most of the events of the donbass conflict starting from 2013 the maidan coup going on to 2014 when the invasion of the donbass began by the ukrainian military and onwards until now and he's whereas he was even at this cafe receiving a an award for his particular journalistic efforts and he was he had a very um innocent kind of view like of, of Christianity, because he was still kind of new into it. He was only practicing Christian for eight years. But uh, fortunately enough, prior to his death, he did partake of communion, and he did confess his sins. Personally, not not just to any priest, but to a bishop. And that was Bishop Sabas of Zelenograd. And for those unaware, Bishop Sabas is the Russian priest who's in charge of Moscow when Patriarch Kirill uh, goes either internationally, visits a different country, or visits a different diocese. So he is what you call a vicar bishop. And a vicar bishop is essentially a, he's the second bishop in charge of Moscow. So when patriarchal goes to visit some other place, bishop Sabas takes over. And so bishop Sabas was a good friends with uh, Maxim Fomin, and he communed him, confessed him, and several days later, four or five days later, this terrorist act takes place and takes his life. And the bishop Sabas writes in his uh, personal telegram chat, he just says that Maxim Fomin, you know, he he went to heaven. Like you don't. You don't just take, you don't just confess and commune, you don't unite with Christ during the time of Great Lent. And Maxim would speak a lot about fasting in Great Lent and how important it is to prepare for Easter, prepare for the celebrations and how to, um, he was very much into it, you know, into at least practicing into the praxis of Orthodox Christianity and his life to be taken like that. Uh, by uh allegedly ukrainian terrorists, but the investigation is still ongoing. Apparently it was a woman who handed the bomb to him personally. The bomb was hidden in one of the trophies that was presented at the at the evening in the cafe. So we're not too sure exactly. Um I guess more news will come out shortly, but yes, uh rest in peace, Maxim, and of course Memory Eternal. A uh, fellow Orthodox Christian, no doubt it's not as it's not as sad because this man has lived a very fulfilling life, came back to Christ of course, was a victim of the terrorist act, but he did prepare for death through confession and communion, which is, frankly, how we all Orthodox Christians uh, wish we could go. In a, exactly, you know, not exactly in a through you know a very violent act of violence, but we do want to prepare for death through confession. So it is uh, somewhat heartwarming, and fr- frankly, the opinion of the Orthodox Church on this act has been, on this terrorist act, has been quite great. Patriarch Kirill spoke out. All these various bishops and priests have spoken out against it. That terrorism should not be. A part of warfare the ukrainians really the ukrainian sbu really need to stop these barbaric acts like this is not how wars are fought. so generally a very powerful moment i guess in the war and we haven't seen something like this since at least daria dugan's assassination or um perhaps the even more mysterious assassination of igor mangoshov with you know who was killed in the lugansk oblast who was you know with a silenced pistol to the back of the head but that was uh I guess that implied killing was a bit more mysterious because you know Igor Mangushov was naturally not really a practicing Christian, and he was a bit more of a a bit more of an esoteric figure himself. Like he would do certain acts publicly, which were perhaps not appealing to the Ukrainians. He would make a lot of provocative, uh, you know. He was an active militant as well in the Donbass region for the Lugansk military. So his assassination was, it was not a, I wouldn't say, probably not a terrorist act. And we're not too sure who killed him. But there was a lot of acts thus far perpetuated by at least the Ukrainian side. Stryma killing as well, very mysterious. Again, Kittil Stryma you know, he spoke out against certain powers that controlled the world, controlled Ukraine. And he was killed in a mysterious car accident right before the fall of Kherson in 2022. And Dario Dugin's killing in the north of Moscow, also from 2022 we just remember these people and eventually i think entire books and you know not just blog posts but entire books will be written about just the all these victims of mysterious killings throughout this conflict and not just these two years that we're in but also the eight years preceding so again uh, need to keep these people in our prayers especially those practicing of the faith such as uh, servant of god maxim Femin. Uh, nevertheless the conflict continues the great lent continues and we're one week away from easter now on palm sunday so we are preparing for that great feast day and uh, of course in a very celebratory mood and hopefully god and as well as these two forces participating do give us some reprieve from all this uh, negativity around at least uh, in the ukraine russian region we can hope that
0: you know as lent comes to a close we celebrate the resurrection of christ that you know, some of the persecutions that we talked about in Ukraine can continue to be lifted and we're gonna and when it comes to terrorism in Russia, we're gonna shift and talk a bit about the mosque situation with the Muslims in and around Moscow and in Russia and all that. But I wanted to shuttle back a little bit. We were um when it comes to those persecutions in Ilvov and in the church, there was a man who I believe it was in Ilvov had stolen a cross from one of the churches and then he was struck with a stroke, and I think he's dead. So I think we're seeing some very, you know, we're seeing some like Ananias and Sapphira, you know, some you know, some very biblical, you know, some Onan moments as, uh, you know, as many Old Testament stories recount those struck down for their evil deeds. But the other thing you mentioned, Pochay of Lavra, and if anything, I think we're all, if anyone was talking about this before the war broke out, we all would have guessed that Pochay probably would have been taken before Kiev, Pechersk, as far as the location of the schismatics and the location of Ukrainian nationalists go. But as far as the lavras of Ukraine, you know, we have Sviatogorsk farther west, or farther east, rather. We have Kiev, Pechersk, obviously in Kiev in the center, and then we have Pochayev more in the east. And I think with all of this, we really need to hope that Sviatogorsk can, as quickly as possible, get behind the Russian front lines so that at least one of these great lavras where I think in the past few years, so much, I'll just say prophetic wisdom has shown forth for the Russian Orthodox people and the Ukrainian Orthodox people that, you know, some of these places we need to have somewhere that's safe where prayer can really be the focus and not, you know, dealing with the politics of a, and the logistics of surviving mortar fire and, and the politics of a persecution amidst war. So we, we can hope and pray for that to happen because these three, you know, kind of spiritual spiritual centers are spread very equally across across the region that at this point I'm just pretty open about hoping more and more can be taken away from those who have so blatantly I think just spit on God and assaulted his his church here on earth. But as far as again in Russia, which we've moved on towards, there's been this big dispute over this mosque in it's around this sacred lake. Dimitri can give more details about it, but this question of mosques and Muslims in, in Russia has really been a big point of discussion, especially in the right wing since the special military operation started because people often show these pictures of you know these huge mosques in Russia and these huge Muslim prayer groups. And there's these huge mosques because the construction of mosques is pretty restricted across Russia outside of Chechnya and Dagestan. And there's very few mosques actually in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And so the mosques themselves are massive because all the Muslims just go there. And this was going to be one of those mosques, but it was going to be even bigger. It was going to be bigger than even any Christian church in Russia. And ultimately, it was protested by the Orthodox, and the location of it is going to be moved. I don't know the exact status of it precisely, but then this got response from who I'm calling the westernized Caucasian Muslim minstrel show, namely people like Hasbullah and you know some of these uh, Dagestani MMA fighters And these, you know, some of these westernized, you know, Russian Muslim minorities that, you know, they, you know, they, they, these are people with relatively, you could say conservative audiences, you know, they may have no real interest in supporting Ukraine, but now suddenly, there's a good excuse for them to be anti Russian. And that begins to raise questions, at least for me, about the American interference and Western interference in Russia, and the attempt to perhaps use this as a wedge between Muslims and between The Caucasus regions and Moscow, and even the Christian population of Russia. So, Dmitry, if you, I want to hear your thoughts on this mosque situation as a Russian.
1: The mosque situation, I think, just. uh, kind of gave us a a fresh glimpse upon the uh, demographic issues facing moscow at least that will be facing moscow in in the future now now these demographic issues of course uh, were intertwined with religion given that many of the immigrants both legal and illegal coming into moscow that have come into moscow over the last few decades have been uh, of the islamic faith now those coming from central asia uzbekistan kazakhstan kyrgyzstan turkmenistan those frankly uh have not really been accounted for at least not discussed in, partic- in this particular issue, but I think mostly those migrant workers living on the outskirts of Moscow in very cheap apartments and working for minimal wage on construction sites in Moscow, they're mainly the primary population of Moscow that have to, you know, that this mosque was to be accounted for. Not the Chechens, not Hezbollah, not, not for example, uh, all the MMA fighters like Mohammed Makaev or uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov or even Kadyrov himself. kadirov. Uh, when he visits Moscow, he doesn't do so uh, for uh, the purposes of a Muslim pilgrimage. There are many, many mosques in both Dagestan and Chechnya and Grozny itself. So frankly, constructing a large mosque that will fit roughly, I mean, according to the plans, it was supposed to fit close to 60,000 Muslims at once, believers that is, those to pray during the Muslim prayer time. And that's uh, according to the blueprints, it was supposed to be larger than the Church of you know, Christ the Savior's Cathedral in the center of Moscow, which, frankly, would make it the largest religious building uh, in Moscow's in in the city of Moscow itself. Now, it w- it would be, of course, on the outskirts, but the particular location that they chose for it was near uh, a very famous, or at least not 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 a famous, but a well known, at least to the people living around Moscow, a very famous lake so to speak, for the locals. It was very uh, renowned. It was called the the Holy Lake or the the Lake of the Saints. And this lake in particular uh, had an Orthodox church nearby. It still stands, a church dedicated to the Theotokos. And according to legend, during the 12th century AD, when Russia was kind of divided before the Mongols, uh, conquered conquered Russia. Uh, Russia was divided in civil war, and all the various princes and principalities war against one another. And when the area was about to be invaded by by an army of one of the princes, uh, the locals would hide in, in one of the churches. And that particular church, suddenly, the uh, Theotokos and all her angels, some cherubim, appeared in the church itself, and suddenly these streams of water began to began to erupt from outside the church, and they sunk the church sunk into the into the into this newly appeared lake, which from you know this kind of just a miracle occurred a lake appeared out of nowhere, and the church submerged into it almost i, I couldn't probably imagine something like a submarine and this twelfth century legend or at least this orthodox narrative from the the story of the lake kind of appeared and so there is this belief uh, of the local orthodox Christians and you know in the um it's locally venerated and considered kind of like a religious fact that during the end times when the world will be, about, will, will you know, is about to end. So during the end times, the church will emerge out of the lake and the people inside of it will, of course, reawaken and continue their sort of prayer. The liturgy will continue within the church and the people in it aren't actually dead. They're in this sort of stasis kind of similar to the uh, youths of ephesus which who fell asleep for 200 300 years and then later were reawakened by god so it's a very interesting story about this lake now the mosque was supposed to be built right next to the lake itself right next to the orthodox church and namely like if you would build a mosque of this size it would of course impact the locals and you know there would there would be apartment buildings the entire muslim diaspora of moscow would essentially move to this area or at least make this their particular Suburban base. Now, the local Orthodox Christians, especially the Russians, those of the Russian ethnicity, were opposed to say opposed to seeing uh, the Muslim diaspora move next door, and they rightfully peacefully protested after the liturgy at the at the church. Including the priest was also involved in it. He was saying, "Look, at, the, at his sermon, he did mention the fact that look, you know, as long as you're protesting peacefully, this should be okay." And all the Russian Orthodox people who showed up locally from all the suburbs around the church, uh, they did come here and kind of gave their opinion that, you know, the Muslim community should not build this gigantic mosque next to our holy lake. Now, what was the response of the uh, of the Muslim community? Well, at least on Instagram, on TikTok, on on Twitter, it was quite negative. So the Muslims, such as Hezbollah, Mohammed Makayev, some of the other MMA fighters, less lesser known, Dagestani, Chechen MMA fighters spoke out against this and they said, look, uh, these racist Russians, these racist Orthodox Christians, they have no authority, they cannot tell us where to build or not build a mosque. We have a patent, we have we have the legal documents stating that we could you know, we purchase this land, like our, our local mullah already arranged everything up Sabyanin, the mayor of Moscow, and they had all these legalities behind them, and they kind of spoke as if, well, look, uh, this mosque in the eastern part of Moscow on the outskirts, like, we have all the authority from the local authorities to build it. We we have the rights. Now, what they don't understand is, well, I guess uh, we knowledgeable people could frankly do the research and realize that Sabyanyan, out of, you know, the mayor of Moscow, Sergei Sabyanyan, is kind of using this as an instrument to appease not just the migrants from Central Asia, but also the various migrants from Chechnya and Dagestan. And these regions, unfortunately, have a very a very low density of jobs and career opportunities there isn't much you, a young man or a young woman can do in Dagestan and Chechnya in terms of you know actually besides farming or even joining some of the local uh, some of the local existing industries which you know would be law enforcement or perhaps fishing in the Caspian Sea or something of this sort it's not really the same career opportunities as you would find in moscow so you have all these young muslim people immigrating to moscow for these for these particular ventures now Sabyanin instead of say asking the authorities of dagestan and chechnya to fix their to actually invest in the local career market and actually develop some job opportunities build factories build schools build you know create more opportunities for these young muslim people he know he in fact invites more of these migrants into moscow and then he in order to appease the whole issue of well where do these young people pray he decides to build a gigantic mosque on the outskirts of Moscow near a holy orthodox side. Now, this is what we call a band-aid political solution. And of course, Sibyanian, given that the Moscow election is coming up, would of course want to cater to the Muslim vote, similar to how the Democrats in the US would cater to the vote of the Latinx community, shall we say, and the BLM community of the African-Americans. So there is this minority catering, minority um, pandering going on here. Which is very is very popular in Moscow, given that n- notice how it's the Chechens and Dagestanis who spoke out a lot, Conrad, because they're a very small minority in Russia itself, less than one percent uh, for both Dagestanis and Chechens, nevertheless, they're the ones on social media actually being the loudest calling Russians racist, calling the orthodox people like a an intolerant chauvinistic religion like it's very bizarre, I think yeah, we've talked about the past, at least hinted
0: at it, especially the issue of you know those demographics. But like you said, the biggest group of Muslims in Russia are these Tatars, not even these Caucasian people. So this idea that they get this big say in Moscow is, is of course ridiculous. But whenever something cringe happens in Russia, it's really just mostly relegated to Moscow itself, whether it comes to COVID stuff, or, you know, stuff regarding like AIDS, people talk about that, or stuff regarding this kind of nonsense. It's again, Moscow is where you know, the, the biggest city in Europe, as it's known, will be where that kind of stuff happens. But we see, again, as I mentioned before, it's risky and Russia has to be tread lightly on these things because the United States will be just lurking and waiting to take any opportunity to start dividing the country. To Because, you know, the reason the Dagestan and Chechen wars and like, the Chechen wars and those things were such a big deal was because it was an entire region and was and separatism was thus more possible than, you know, somewhere like the United States, where there's really no region where any group, ideological or ethnic, is concentrated enough to separate from the major power centers of the United States and Zog. So unlike, you know, that's why the Chechen Wars had to be fought because of that regionalism. But now it seems that, you know, they've got to tread lightly with this population because they fought so hard to retain them. And now we need to make sure they're not used against them in in the fifth generation hybrid warfare that we're a part of but the stuff in in russia is, is all very interesting the terrorism we hope that we don't see more of that but as it looks to me that ukraine is they're going to lose the war the question is just how much territory are they going to lose bakhmut seemed to be a line in the sand scott ritter is saying bakhmut is the end of the war it may go on for two more years but he kind of equates it to like gettysburg that was Gettysburg the civil war in america fought on for two more years but that was like, Gettysburg was fought, and that was really kind of where it was decided. But we now can move to you know the other parts of the world with World War Three, and we see Israel things really heating up. And in previous episodes, we've talked about the huge protests against Netanyahu. Netanyahu attempting to bring the Supreme Court of Israel completely under the Knesset, which is a unicameral legislature. And again, the president of Israel is entirely powerless. So the prime minister and the legislature have all the power. And so to bring the Supreme Court under that would be to completely remove the checks and balances held on the Prime Minister and Netanyahu, who, again, doesn't even have a majority. He's in a plurality. So the, the situation is very tenuous there. But honestly, I think I have to agree with Nick Fuentes in the sense that I see a lot of this tension now between Hezbollah and Hamas as actually riled up intentionally by Netanyahu, one of those being, I believe, a rumor that a goat was supposed to be slaughtered Somewhere, or perhaps near some mosque, or even in Al Aqsa, perhaps, and so then Muslims showed up, and then it provoked a, provoc- provoked a confrontation with the IDF, and there was, and therefore Hamas and Hezbollah then responded in kind with missiles, as they do when they perceive Muslims to be persecuted by Zionists in Israel itself. So, it, and and what does that do? Well, that serves to unite everybody behind the current government against this perceived attack, this new level of attack that they are experiencing, as undoubtedly every Middle Eastern country at this point effectively has moved more away from Israel and towards Iran and Syria and, you know, thus China and Russia, the you know the axis of resistance against NATO and America and Israel, you know, SOG. And I think a lot of these, you know, a lot of these flare-ups by Hamas and these Iranian-backed groups, while they may be effective, we may see true flare-ups and some real war again. It does serve to currently secure Netanyahu in his place and make it less likely that he is driven out by what seemed to be some of the biggest political protests in Israel we've seen in a long time. But beyond that, the stuff on al seems to just be ramping up more and more. And that's something that we know is mentioned in many prophecies. We know also, I mean, in the city of Jerusalem, we've talked extensively about the Christian persecutions there of a Jerusalem patriarchy and how it actually mirrors the Ukrainian persecutions. So, Dmitri, I'm curious your thoughts on everything going on there right now and the general shift towards towards iran towards china and away from israel and the uh you know the post-imperial
1: zionist project there it does appear that modern secular governments despite them claiming to be secular do have a very large influence over how they can resolve and kind of resolve as well as cause problems for, you know, and, and kind of perpetuate solutions. Sobyanian in Moscow, the mosque, his solution to that was, well, we're not going to build it near the Holy Lake. We'll build it somewhere else, not to offend the Orthodox Christians. So that issue was solved. In Ukraine, Zelensky, of course, of the kiev Pechersk lava, claiming that, look, we're going to take the lava from the Orthodox monks and then kind of backing down after a while, or at least it hasn't been taken yet. And it's been about two weeks now, uh, following the announcements that the monks need to leave by the end of March. It's we're well, already almost two weeks into April, and the monks still haven't been forced out. So the secular governments in these particular regions, as well as Israel, the Jews leading Israel, uh, where we see the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, pressured by the Israeli security forces, similar to how Zelensky pressured the uh, Ukrainians in Kiev, pechersk and of course, the Muslims tried to pressure Sibyanian and the Orthodox in Moscow. Uh, religion still plays a very heavy, heavy role in modern politics, and this is kind of undeniable at this point, given that the nature of this cold third world war, and it's moving into the hot zone, and we saw the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock being pressured by Israeli security forces after the Israel provocatively stroke, uh, actually attacked Syrian territory from the Golan Heights, pr- provoking, of course, Syria to activate some of its you know potential um, Hezbollah cells in Gaza, and then Israel striking. Striking uh, the Gaza Strip with even more missiles. So, frankly, we have Israel fighting on both sides against two of these uh, two of their Arabic, you know, nemesis. We have the Palestinians on one end, the Syrians, and then you have the. Israelis on the other side. And the Muslims, how they kind of fall into this, at least in the Al-Aqsa Mosque situation, is the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex, it involves these two particular buildings. The Al-Aqsa Mosque itself, which is situated on the Dome of the Rock, is situated next to the Dome of the Rock, together on the Temple Mount where the old temple stood, the old Jewish temple mentioned in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the two temples, in fact. The Christians over the years haven't built anything on uh, on these particular sites, and they've kind of been relegated to antiquity. But the Muslims did construct the Al-Aqsa Mosque and also the Dome, which we see, you know, the large Golden Dome kind of crowning Jerusalem uh, in this uh, very uh, kind of powerful statement from the Muslim community that this is one of our holiest sites. And in fact, yes, Jerusalem to the Muslims is considered their third most holiest city after Mecca and Medina. Now, what happened in Jerusalem's old city at the, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque was the Israeli security forces. When the strikes on Gaza began, the Israeli security forces did a complete search. Notice, though, the Muslims were having their Ramadan prayers. They did a complete search of the mosque, armed, you know, completely, dressed in Kevlar with machine guns. They ran into the Al-Aqsa Mosque and actually closed it off, did a complete search, of the you know scaring all the local Muslims trapped inside, and there was a, a, a huge. This wasn't coordinated with the Muslim community at all. So in fact, this is kind of what we feared would happen to the Christians in Kiev-Pechersk, where the Ukrainians would simply use their military to burst into the lava. The, Ju- the Jews did the same here in Israel to the Muslims. So we kind of see this act of well armed armed Israeli uh, security forces, even military, openly um, uh, kind of pressuring a religious community. Uh, I I guess I don't really have any comments towards this besides it's just an, you know, an act of persecution of the the Palestinian minority in Israel that we've seen for many decades prior, but now it's kind of, we've not seen something, you know, this horrendous, like even an Israeli, a liberal progressive Israeli journalist said, look, unlike the former years, we're facing a very radical government, which on one hand is quite powerful, on the other hand, quite fragile, he's talking about Netanyahu's uh, right-wing government, he says, the most radical parts of it are pushing for action that might turn into a catastrophe. And of course, he says, the scenes from the Al-Aqsa Mosque were seen, were not seen in recent years. They were very brutal, and I think that any small match can set this fire, can set a fire to the whole area. Hopefully, it will not happen, but nobody can guarantee that it will not happen. This is the Israeli journalist kind of commenting on his own government, kind of sta- staging these events here. Naturally, the whole Muslim world is still disunited as we spoke about the afghanistan situation uh iran saudi arabia finally talking the islamic world is not united in order to react to this particular ordeal and i think the palestinians are the the lambs that could be slaughtered by the adf and the israelis in this case and no, nobody will come to their rescue conrad that's what i think i don't think israel is afraid of any of its neighbors given you know lebanon nor syria nor even egypt
0: well they may not be afraid of them but they are afraid of iran at the end of the day and it depends on how easy and how many weapons Iran feels like sending to places like the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And we see right now we see that we mentioned China, we've mentioned China about these negotiations with Saudi and in Iran they're making nice very very quickly, which is leading to what looks to be a rapid end to the war in Yemen, as you know the Iran backed Houthi rebels there who. Again, they wouldn't be able to fight against the Saudis and have actually been super successful in taking out large columns of tanks and other sophisticated weapon systems due to their Iranian weapons that they've gotten for so many years. And again, before Ethiopia and then, of course, before Ukraine, the Yemen war in Yemen was the bloodiest war of the 21st century. So to see that come to an end is, of course, good as Ukraine continues to slog on. But that's not a good thing for Israel because having Iran tied up down there supporting them against. Their big brother, Saudi Arabia, in the in the U.S. relations game was was helpful to Israel to have have the bit of the pressure taken off. But every single country surrounding Israel has moved closer to Iran and has moved farther away from U.S. Israeli influence ever since. What seems ever since the Arab Spring didn't complete its entire objectives in ousting Bashar al-Assad and ultimately also resulting in regime change in Iran. Neither of those things happened, so we're seeing the consequences, which is. Israel is in greater danger than ever at least from my perspective. But when it comes to some of the stuff about Israel supporting Ukraine, we hear this a lot. There's this leaked document, this top secret document supposedly from the US and they're not denying it, so it's uh you know, it seems to be credible, uh titled, you know, Israel pathways to providing lethal aid to Ukraine. And it says Israel is committed to providing non-lethal aid to Ukraine comprised of intelligence, counter-UAS support, and a civil early warning system as it seeks to maintain its freedom and action in Syria by balancing its ties with the U.S. and Russia. Prime Minister Netanyahu indicated Israel has considered providing Ukraine additional defensive systems in support at the United Nations. Jerusalem likely will consider notice all the U.S. documents now say Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv likely will consider providing lethal aid under increased U.S. pressure or perceived degradation in its ties to Russia as a result of Moscow's actions in Iran or Syria that undermine Israeli interests. And then it has this graph, this kind of table at the end with most plausible to least plausible. With the most plausible scenario for pathways to providing lethal aid to Ukraine for Israel, it says Jerusalem adopts Turkish model for Ukraine aid. Scenario, Israel adopts Turkey's model after U.S. pressure and sells lethal defense systems or provides them through third-party entities. It openly advocates for a peaceful end to the conflict and offers to host mediation efforts. And the background of this, it says, is Ankara has successfully maintained cordial relations with Moscow while facilitating arms transfers to Kiev. Jerusalem may believe it can similarly balance its ties. And then it gets to the like less plausible situations, one of them being something like expanded adversary air defense presence and use in Syria, and the scenario being Russia incurs casualties from Israeli strikes and begins directly targeting Israeli aircraft with SAMs. Iran transfers advanced SAMs such as the IRSA-2, RSA 3 to Syria, shifting Israel's calculus on lethal aid. So they have these situations being where Israel and Russia basically directly are killing each other in the middle east and therefore israel supports ukraine and again when it comes to israel and the u.s a lot of times it's hard to tell depending on which country is more geopolitically stable at the time it's hard to tell which tail is wagging the dog regardless we know zionists are wagging the dog on either end it just depends on whether it's really the ones in tel aviv or if it's the ones in manhattan and dc that are really you know kind of calling the shots, and those ones in D.C. are sometimes willing to even sacrifice certain Israeli interests for the broader interests of the world empire. But it seems that, as we've suspected, Israel and Turkey being these states that are so heavily in the circle of the U.S.-NATO apparatus surrounding Russia and their other enemies of the West, that they've, from day one, there have been extreme thought put into how their relations with Moscow can be not necessarily destroyed to maintain a certain level of, look, the The U.S. does not want a war to go down, like, with one of the lines being Israel and Russia and China being against them. That's, I think that's just a losing war from both the ideas perspective and an actual military capability perspective. So they want to be maintaining that visage and not have this sort of breakdown. And, like, frankly, if that happened, it would just be, like, Muslims and Christians versus jews and secularists in some kind of war so they want to maintain those relations but have these powerful countries that do produce military weapons that do have powerful intelligence operations like turkey and israel they want them to be supporting ukraine they want them to be part of this thing they want them to be ensuring that russia as many russians and as many ukrainians and as many christians die so i think this document is i believe that it's real they even talk about they have whole lists of select Israeli origin weapons that could be transferred to Ukraine, you know, and these are all sorts of different ground-based missile systems and you know, javelin equivalents with these uh, sorts of things that can be used to, that they think will start changing the tide of the war as Russia continues to be victorious and achieve its military aims. So, I think this is all very interesting. Uh, Dimitri, do you have anything more to say about Iran, Israel, before we maybe talk a bit about a bit about Greece and some stuff going on in the U.S.
1: Yeah, just before you mention Greece, I think it's very interesting that Israel actually, uh, you know, it's... Israel's relation with the U.S. is very interesting. So the U.S. obviously has taken an open anti-Russian stance. Now, it, it the question arises, does the U.S. dislike Russia more than it loves Israel and Israel's well being because for Israel's well being to be completely broken in the Middle East, it will need to, you know, openly declare itself an anti -anti Russian state, which it can't do. I don't think Israel ever has, you know, there have been tensions over the entire Syrian conflict with, you know, Israeli Israel shooting down, I believe, some Russian aircraft and also not particularly coordinating well with the Russian mission in Syria. But nevertheless, Russia and Israel have stayed on decent neutral ground, at least thus far. But the US also like a like the thrifty gang leader that it is, wants Israel to commit to this particular operation in Ukraine, and it does want Israel to also, uh, you know, contribute, kind of paid its fee in blood, you know, contribute to this slaughter going on. So they are asking Israel to, in a very sensible fashion, in according to the Turkish model, shall we say, which Turkey has kept neutrality for this long, to provide something at least towards the effort. Everybody needs to. It's almost like a. Uh, an occult ritual everybody needs to contribute to the crime in order for everybody to be complicit and israel is just one of those places and this is i suppose the strategy according to the secret document that they're going to use um you know this turkish model of events now of course the turkish model may change in turkey itself after the election in may and june of this year which we'll discuss with david Erhana in a future stream but also we just the model you mentioned um of Greece is also changing. We'll speak about that in a moment. Like, uh, What are your thoughts on the Greek situation and the the Greek government actually refusing to provide um, anti-air defense to Ukraine? I think that's probably one of the most surprising news, at least to myself, in recent weeks.
0: Well, for those of us who, you know, support orthodox unity in the face of evil, the Greeks have been big letdowns as far as recognizing the schismatics, as well as supporting Ukraine and sending weapons. But now, in general, of course, The Mitsotakis government and the government in Greece is, you know, their whole Ukraine thing is not popular. People in Greece really don't like Zelensky. They're not very interested in supporting him like this. Of course, there are liberals there that will support such nonsense. But now the government is using the excuse of, you know, we need these to fight against Turkish aggression. We can't be giving this up, which is true. Like, I mean, Greece has very, you know, their military needs are much more perceived by the public than a lot of countries. So... That's a valid excuse, but it's also just a good excuse to give the public to also signal that you're not. Like, if they were giving up these weapons from two perspectives of the Turkish issue and just the unpopularity of the Ukraine issue, that would be a big issue in Greece. So, you know, we'll see what happens in the next Greek elections, but generally speaking, Greeks, as is said, they're very good at talking about and discussing politics, but they're not very good at it themselves because they, they just oscillate between these socialist, cringe leftists and then these center-right retards. And never, you know, and never get any kind of real, I don't know, I just never see, it never seems like serious government from Greece, at least ever since I've paid attention to Greek politics, which is, you know, post, you know, debt slavery issues. So who knows how real all of it is? It may not be the best way to judge, but, you know, we hope maybe in the next elections we can get some people to take Orthodoxy a little bit more seriously. But in the same region, a bit north of Greece in the Balkans, we saw Milo Dukanovich finally completely ousted from power for the final time. It seems he had been in power in Montenegro for 30 years. He was prime minister and he was president at different times, you know, oscillating between the roles. And in 2019, 2020, he had attempted to do kind of what the Ukrainian government is doing to the church in Ukraine and pass this law that would render all of the property of the Serbian Orthodox church in Montenegro. And remember Montenegro was part of Serbia until 2006 and Confiscated, basically, and either have it be government museum stuff, or give it to the schismatic Montenegrin Orthodox Church, which frickin' nobody is a part of. Like those, those—they're literally irrelevant in Montenegro. It's another State Department NATO project, and Montenegro in general is a State Department NATO project, being this EU wannabe state. I've been to Montenegro. There's EU flags everywhere. They're really pining to get in and be seen as legitimate. You know, I guess to never be taken back by Serbia, which. It is Montenegro is Serbia, but the government there again, Dukanovic is finally completely lost. He lost the, his party came, got, he got 41% of the vote versus almost 59% of the vote from the, from his competitor, who is a political newcomer, who again, we're not going to, I don't have any evidence that he's like super based or anything. He's generally pro-Western again, Montenegro is literally a part of NATO. But he is not this rabid Eurocrat who's been terrorizing the people, the Serbs of the region, I mean, even within Serbian politics now for 30 plus years. So we're we're very grateful for that. And people will probably remember the massive protests mobilized by the now reposed and saintly metropolitan M. and and the other hierarchs. And now those hierarchs who have now come to power in, in Serbia are kind of the they really, they really came out of a lot of this struggle that the Serbian people of Montenegro had to resist this law, and they were able to resist the law by mobilizing over three hundred thousand protesters across the country. And this is a country of six hundred thousand people, so that that shows you just how powerful the Orthodox of this area were against some of these laws. And I've, been, again, I've been to Montenegro. I've been to the Ostrog Monastery. It's a beautiful place. I, I think the Orthodox people there seem very faithful. So. I'm very happy that they're no longer living under such a such a gross dictator.
1: Yeah, that's right. The dictatorship of Dukanovic was very very curious because on one hand it was like a leftover of Tito Yugoslavianism of this communist unity to the region, kind of just corrupting the local Serbs of this uh, local Serbs and Montenegrin peoples with this uh, a vision of orthodoxy as this kind of obscure, low-grade, low sort of low-grade low lifestyle, low-grade mindset, which, interestingly enough, in a lot of countries, the psyop against orthodoxy comes in different fashions. Like, I was speaking to an orthodox Christian just a week ago, and he was describing to me that, at least in Serbia and in Yugoslavia itself, when it did become communist, people like Dukanovic would kind of describe orthodoxy as something as low socioeconomic people would be associated with. So, orthodoxy, priests are usually considered uneducated in in Serbia, Serbia and Montenegro itself. They're usually considered uneducated people, people who couldn't succeed in careers, henceforth they needed to join the clergy. Whereas clergymen are revered in even places of the West, you know, somebody who's taken on a large responsibility, caring for the souls of others. In Montenegro and Serbia in particular, folks such as Milo Dukanovich have, you know, kind of given us this image that the church is really not important and it's mostly secular politics which matters. Now, the new president of Montenegro, uh, Yakov Milatovic, he's an Orthodox Christian according to, you know, according to at least some of the official sources. All three of his children are baptized, his wife is baptized, even though he himself, as Conrad mentioned, he does come from a very Eurocentric party, the PES party, but they are uh, the Pest Party, they are Eurocentric, but in, as Conrad did say, the, Mon- the entire Montenegrin project is Eurocentric. It is very NATO-driven. The fact that Montenegro is separate from Serbia is already in a front, both to history and Orthodox Church tradition. In a way, Montenegro was always considered closer to Serbia than, say, even, I don't know, even some of the Western Ukrainian lands are to Russia. So it is very much... A part of the larger Serbian world, if you could say uh, Serbski mir, as you say Ruski mir, but uh, that would be a bit uh, too, I think, hyperbolic politically speaking. But Montenegro is a part of the Serbian Serbian civilization and it really needs to stay close to it. And the fact that it's disunited is, uh, of course, a travesty. Now, it's good that the president of Montenegro is now an Orthodox Christian. Perhaps he'll respect the faith, and he won't push for more schismatic activities. Uh, now, the population of Montenegro is very small, as Conrad says, 600,000. Compare that to, say, even the Belarus population of 9.3 million. And, you know, it, it is. Uh, it, it should be taken into consideration that, yeah, smaller population, things can still happen in the Orthodox world in a small region, you know, but evil cannot triumph if we're all aware of it. The protesters in Montenegro have shown that the their secular government under the you know Ducanovictry who lost the election, cannot get away with explicit anti-orthodox actions, so even in a region as far and as isolated as Montenegro, something that doesn't come up on many people's radars, Orthodox Christians in such a small region are still super active. they still came out online, they still disputed the particular actions that were taking place against the church, and they won in the end. Just as the local Moscovites, the local residents of the, uh, of the of the Holy Lake, uh, of those particular suburbs, they won against the Muslims who wanted to decide to build a large mosque. So what does this show us, right? Conrad, it shows us that Orthodox Christians can actively participate in local politics and actually achieve results. Politics isn't just a zero-sum game. We can come out on top at least, and maybe not in you know, generally participating in the larger democratic system, but at least in local affairs, we can definitely make give our voices and they may be heard. We may come back with palpable results.
0: And it just proves that the establishment of an orthodox society, an orthodox phronema, an orthodox community within a country that really seeps into the ethos and mindset of, you know, the ethnos even, you then have this powerful vehicle this that, you know, is guided by the Holy Spirit even that does allow you to organize in certain political situations when the time arises, you know, like we see even in Ukraine, like we see, of course, like we said, in Montenegro. And Montenegro, again, separated from Serbia in 2006, completely landlocking the country. Total fake referendum, barely passed. They were bussing in Albanians, you know, you can do the research yourself. It's total, total scam. Beautiful place. I love the Bay of Kotor, Montenegro, you know, met up with some ortho bros from Twitter there. So, Uh, It's a beautiful place. I hope that it can be restored to Serbia in my lifetime. But speaking of, you know, somewhat more white-pilling situations, our beloved Metropolitan Neophytos has been acquitted of the COVID restrictions that he had been accused of violating during the nonsensical lockdowns that, you know, struck the whole world, of course, in Cyprus as well. And, you know, he had had hundreds of people gathered at the Karkotis River in Cyprus for the Feast of Theophany to bless the waters. That was in 2021. They were going to force him to do to like stop doing it and maybe arrest him and then they issued a fine and he refused to pay the fine and then in 2020 he was uh also under investigation for his palm sunday service for not having restrictions or anything i'll read i'll just briefly read the uh, comments from the metropolis on this it's very encouraging therefore the most reverend metropolitan the Ophitos of Morfu Wishes to send thanks to the, from the bottom of his soul to the triune God, the most holy Theotokos, Saint the I, Bishop of Solon, the patron saint of our metropolis, Saint Mama, and also the fathers Saint Iacobos Salikis, Saint Eumanius the leper, Saint Paesios the athenite, Saint Nikephoros the leper, Saint Philuminos of Oronta, and Saint Porfirios of Cavso Calivia, for the support and protection they provided to us throughout our ordeal. He also wants to express his thanks to his lawyer. Uh, Mr. Clarides, and to the clergy and the faithful people of Cyprus and Greece, but also to the Orthodox everywhere for their prayers and the many electronic and written messages and letters of support sent to us. We will continue to minister and confess the truth of Christ in the Church. So this shows you, of course, the Metropolitan Neophytos was, he was protected, of course, due to the prayers that he employed of so many wonderful saints and the Theotokos and his own, you know, tears and in, in prayers to Christ, which, you know, I, I would say he's one of, I would, if I had to wager more powerful prayer warriors, I guess as they're called in this life, he would probably be one of them. But just on a few other things, in October of 2020, his eminence Metropolitan Nectarios of Corfu, and in November of 2022, his eminence Metropolitan Seraphim of Kithira, both of the Church of Greece, were acquitted of all charges related to celebrating the services during the lockdown. In February 2023, his eminence Metropolitan Joana Kehihe of Montenegro, who was recently enthroned as the canonical Metropolitan of Montenegro, uh, and eight priests from Nietzsche were acquitted of COVID-related charges from 2020. So this shows you that, you know, these Orthodox countries have come out of this a lot of ways. And these people are actually, finally, a lot of this persecution is perhaps not being rectified, but at least truly Being recognized for what it was as wrong, and people are being acquitted and charges are being dropped, and it's encouraging. Again, Metropolitan Joandaki, he's a very radical, I guess some said Serbian nationalist. He was strong on the Montenegro issue. He's strong on the COVID issue, and many were somewhat skeptical of uh, Patriarch Porfirios of Serbia. They didn't see him as the most conservative candidate, but his appointees to these bishop positions and his stance on standing with Montenegro and standing with Ukraine, I think it's proven very much that he was part of this new crew of the ship that St. Porphyrios had spoken about during that will come to you know minister to some of these churches during the times that we are in today.
1: That's right. It's a huge blessing having hierarchs who don't compromise on issues such as COVID and the pandemic, who, and who don't compromise on issues of the Ukrainian church question and on co-celebrating with schismatics, because co-celebrating with schismatics and heretics is considered a heresy and a breach of canon law in and of itself. So, frankly, not just even attending a service and commemorating schismatics is already considered a sin, which is why the Russian church broke communion with the with multiple Greek church jurisdictions in 2018 and 2019. I think those events have, you know, greatly shaped uh, what we see today, at least in Ukraine. And uh, it, it is, frankly, a reaction. And, you know, this does affect uh, other jurisdictions overseas as well. For example, the Estonian Orthodox Church and the Finnish Orthodox Church, which is one of the other reasons, Finland, I suppose, has always been a target for for you know Western sources, uh, at least to, well, the, the forces of the West, at least that wish to impose their sort of mindset upon the people of Finland. Finland has always been, at least in some sense, over the last three hundred years, uh, a, in, an integral member of the Russian civilization. It is kind of in that middle ground between the the Sweden, the Kingdom of Sweden, and the Russian Sardom. And they've kind of the fact that the Finnish state has recently been, you know, one of the big news, I suppose, of the week, has been that the Finnish state has been officially granted entrance into NATO. Is again a, a huge affront, not just to the church, but also to the Russian Federation itself. Now that the NATO border with Russia has expanded at least uh, twice in length, up to I think sixteen hundred miles or 1,600 kilometers, so to speak. It has um, put a lot of uh, Russian defense um, defense considerations at risk. And it also, of course, I think divides the Finnish society, or those p- in participating in the Finnish Orthodox Church away from some of its Orthodox neighbors, more conservatively speaking. We all know Finland during during the last 100 years has had very skeptical stances on Orthodoxy, and its membership in NATO isn't making things uh, any easier because we do know NATO, besides just being a military alliance, is very much an adherent of the alphabet values and some of those values associated with those, um, those particular leanings. It is a very progressive military alliance, not just simply one which is anti-Russian, they also seek to push an agenda across all of its member states. And remember, we saw San Marin just lose in
0: Finland, the, like, libtard, cocaine-snorting girl boss prime minister that got in trouble for all her, like, party videos. She lost, and then this, like, more right-wing guy came, but they both hate Russia, so as far as from a foreign policy perspective, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, Finland's now in NATO. From Article 5 perspective, it definitely matters. But I'm quoting, I'm going to read some... A brief Russian with, Russians with attitudes thread their perspective on it. I think it it is interesting. They say this is just a PR step. Finland hasn't been meaningfully neutral in the sense of military alliances since the 90s, and has since then continuously taken steps for further integration with NATO, both in terms of arms procurement and command structure. Same goes for Sweden. Swedish soldiers participated in NATO missions from Kosovo to Libya, and have had a host of country and have had a host country agreement with NATO for years, allowing for joint exercises and NATO troop deployments to Sweden. The formally joining part is just optics. And it's not just that, it's also a chance for Turkey, as we talked about before with this Turkish strategy, Turkey keeping Sweden out is a way for them to kind of keep up a better look with Moscow, saying things like, see, we're, you know, we're keeping some of them out. We're not going full on with NATO. But again, it, it is a lot of PR. A lot of this stuff is for, you know, if it, if it really came down to it, are we re- do we really believe that, you know, the the libtards that are in Finland and that occupy their government wouldn't ultimately side with the West? Unfortunately, That's what we're seeing. And Finland, unfortunately, is very strategically located regarding Russian, you know, geostrategic
1: interests like that. Yeah, that's right. And on top of that, Putin has Russian retaliation to Finland joining NATO has been... Putin, as well as some members of his staff and also medvedev himself openly stating that we will be stationing nuclear missiles and long-range missiles in belarus so russia essentially has moved some of its tactical long-range missile units into belarus or at least officially they have stated they're going to do so in order to look if nato is pushing their border further east and including some of these eastern scandinavian states you know to to join into the alliance so russia should also aptly kind of position its, its offensive forces or defensive forces more towards the west in its allied neighbor country belarus which is essentially already already de facto a part of russia at least in a military sense this complete integration almost of the two militaries it's we're only waiting for a formal de jure kind of uh, document to be signed between the two. But we've spoken about Belarus a couple of times over the last few episodes and yeah, we are waiting for that Lukashenko Putin moment where they meet up and they all agree to, you know, finally unite the two nations. That would be probably um one of the greatest events of the of of, of the of the decade when that does take place. But again, um <clears throat> still waiting for that to happen and uh yeah Finland joining NATO and Erdogan essentially as you said, Erdogan condoning it and Russians of attitude correctly said that Erdogan did try to take a neutral stance. We spoke about this with David, and finally Erdogan seems to have buckled a little bit and has provided some of that leeway to his Western, uh, to those probably of, of a more Western mindset amongst this government, to say that look, we do have to we do have to permit Finland to join, and we we have to just go ahead of it. And like as this business insider article says, you know Finland's membership has been delayed as Turkey, a NATO member, held held on its approval, and. Because Turkey simply has accused Finland and Sweden of supporting groups that Turkey sees as terrorists. So these are like far right wing pagan groups in Sweden and Finland, which you know now apparently the Finnish government has persecuted, and also uh, Sweden has you know not really stopped all of that Quran burning that was going on there. So Sweden is still not a member of NATO, and that's that'll be interesting to see when they do put put an end to that and those public displays of I guess hatred or whatever bigotry they bring up but it will be interesting to see also i think conrad to consider that now that turkey does mark out these groups as like terrorist, <clears throat> these pagan groups as somewhat offensive to their particular state and ukraine on the other hand marking out the orthodox church that that would you know the orthodox church which is canonical and under the jurisdiction of moscow at least very lim- in a very limited capacity uh, will there be possibly in the future, at least in countries marked out as NATO, those churches which relate to Russia in any sort of sense, could there be a potential persecution? Like the Finnish Orthodox Church is very much still influenced by the greater Russian jurisdiction next door. Could we see a certain uh, sort of witch hunt looking for Russian collaborators in some of these NATO countries? I think there's a short prognosis that could be made here that, yeah, this is potentially where they're going. And Zelensky is simply the the one uh, steering the ship here, he is the icebreaker that is going to set a, set this course of destroying any any ties of orthodoxy, uh, any ties that the Orthodox Church has to this future to this future empire in the East, or at least you know kind of persecuting Orthodox Christians with that pretext. I think it's really negative, and we could see Finland get involved in that in the future. That's just my kind of uh, hypothetical.
0: Not that this is directly tied to it, but the, well, it kind of is actually. The Finnish Orthodox Church is directly under the Ecumenical Patriarch and is one of the most egregious offenders of a lot of ecumenism. A lot they have like gluten free Eucharist. They of course are on, they're on the Gregorian calendar for some reason, not like the revised Julian, like the actual Gregorian. So like they, yeah, there's all sorts of problems. So it's just another example of. How the EP, frankly, just needs to be moved to Mount Athos at this point, and all of their weird satellites around the world that have nothing to do with the current Hellenic world need to be uh, surrendered to the actual, you know, local Orthodox people that are in that geographic region. But that all aside, there is... Big things happening in Turkey. We're going to be having David on for a stream with that election coming up. Again, Turkish election coming first, U. X. election coming afterwards. My statement being, I believe the Turkish, Turkish election actually matters more. But here in the U.S., we're seeing big things. All the Tennessee stuff has all the political, you know, with the gun control and the Fake Malcolm X Larper guy yelling and stuff everyone's talking about all this about political power and stuff's really getting polarized here in the u s and the whole Trump arraignment and indictment and potential arrest and subsequent gag order that's likely it's all it's all coming to a head and it's and it's all in the backdrop of World War three again we're all going to get distracted with the crazy domestic stuff with the u s and the southern border, which all very much matters but when 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 the when the sea changes and maybe Trump gets in or not. Again, if Trump doesn't get in, again, I'm not saying that Trump will immediately fix all of our geopolitical problems. But if he doesn't get in, the powers that be in Zog will see it as a big vindication to just march continually forward with what they see as a potential, I think, world review that they might be able to win, perhaps before on a long enough timeline a World War III occurs that they are incapable of winning and lose. So we're watching all of this very closely, of course. Dimitri, if there's anything else you have to say about anything we talked about, I'd love to hear it. But if not, we can kind of start to start to wrap this up.
1: Yeah, kind of just going on, going deeper into April, I think we'll have a clearer forecast of what's going to happen during in, during these Turkish elections in May. And naturally, uh, we will be having our first live stream covering the elections with David Erhan, who you can also follow on Twitter and, and YouTube. Of course, his huge YouTube channel, 10,000 subscribers, where he covers Orthodox theological subjects. But besides theology, I think his local opinions on politics have been clearly demonstrated in the streams with Jay Dyer, as well as us at, on World War Now. The interview we have with with David regarding Turkey can be found in the channel. We'll be posting it in the description as well, so you guys can check it out. But yeah, besides that, I think mainly main news that need to be covered at least next week is how will the persecutions in Ukraine develop, because at this point we have seen a certain stalemate Zelensky hasn't pushed too deep. And, you know, frankly, we'll also see how Israel and Palestine kind of, uh, will the bombardments of Gaza continue? Will there be an escalation between Israel and Syria, who at this point consider themselves um, adversaries in an active sense? Yeah, uh, definitely things are heating up, at least in that part of the world. And it will be very interesting to see how it all develops.
0: And, of course, Christ is risen from the dead. That That is, Pascha is coming soon. Of course, the holy fire will descend in Jerusalem, and we will... Of course, bring you the details about that after it occurs at whatever show, whether it's World War Now or Ether Hour that we record after it happens. But with all of that, be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, .substack worldwarnow.substack.com. It's where everything happens. We're hoping the whole Twitter thing is done. It seems that our Substack links are getting likes again. We hope that is all behind us, and I just never have to think about that again, because that was really pissing me off. But subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, as well please do both it's really great we post clips on the youtube channel we post full episodes of ether hour on substack there's great reasons to be subscribed to both there's great reasons to comment on both we reply to almost all the substack comments we reply to the good youtube comments yeah only the good ones if you're on youtube but follow me on twitter gnome rad follow demetriotocanonist follow the world war now twitter world war now underscore Follow us on Telegram World War Now Tele E L E. We've got some big things coming. Like we said, Twitter Space slash live streams. You know, you'll be able to ask us questions at some point through the Twitter Space. But most likely, we'll be live streaming it even on the YouTube channel. So we're looking forward to delving into that. We've got articles coming. I actually have some articles on the Turley Talks website turleytalks.com. If you check that out, that's part of the reason I haven't been writing as many articles on World War Now. But with all of that, Dimitri, if you want to sign us off, I think that's a good place to end it.
1: Yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. We wish you a great holy week, the last week of great Lent. Keep your prayers up. Keep fasting. There's only one week to go, and hope everybody has a very feastful Easter uh, next weekend. And honestly, um, have a great last week of Lent, and God bless everybody. Thank you. God bless y'all.